cooperative economy platforms. And uh, I'm very happy to have with me some real experts in the field, and I'm looking forward for uh, their uh, talks and their ideas on the table. Uh, with alphabetical order, um, in my far right, we have Cristiano Codagnone, who is professor in Milan State University and U Universitat Oberta de Catalunya. And he is also co-founder on Open Evidence, who has uh, extensively uh, wrote on this topic. Uh, we have uh, um, Val Valerio Michele Di Stefano, professor of labor law in uh, Catholic University of Louvain, who also spent uh, uh, many years in uh, the International Labor Organization working exactly on this area. We have Irene Mand, uh, from, uh, who is uh, the head of uh, employment unit in Eurofound and specializes, uh, uh, she has some interesting ongoing projects uh, on this area of crowd employment. And uh, we have uh, Amit Singh, uh, the public policy manager of the economic policy unit at Uber, who arrived uh, from San Francisco. I hope he's not so jet lagged. And uh, he will give us the corporate perspective on the topic uh, on crowd employment and the relationship between platforms and uh, um, suppliers of services. Um, I believe that they, you are here for them, not for me. So I will give the floor to Amit to start with his presentation. And I, we have the slides there. Great. And, uh, if that's actually the start or not. Um, sorry, we'll just go to the start. Okay, great. Um, thank you very much for um, thank you very much for the opportunity of being able to um, speak about how we think about. Um, how we think about work, how we think about the future of work, how we think about our relationship with our drivers. Um, I am, my, my name is Amit Singh, I work in the policy research um, group at Uber. It's a group that's based in San Francisco and we do a lot of work in terms of investigating and thinking about our relationship um, with the drivers and riders and how we have impacts in terms of the way in which we think about work and, and its impacts on the labour market more generally. Um, I am also um, I'm also Australian, um, so I'm an Australian that lives and works in America, so I apologise apologize profusely for my mangled accent um, at the start. Um, uh, if I spoke French, it would be worse, so you're in a better position than, than most people. Um, what are we going to do in the... This is the roadmap for the next 600 seconds, in a sense. What I want to cover, basically, is the context for which we think about um, the relationship of, uh, around sort of uh, around work, around the nature of the nature of the work model that we use. Um, I want to talk quickly about the way in which uh, different um, actors in the collaborative economy, the gig economy, the on-demand economy, take your pick on labels. Um, the different ways in which different actors in that space have different relationships to work, and how the diversity of that means that the way in which you think about those models, um, or the way in which you think about that relationship, is very different. I want to talk rough, uh, very quickly about the demand for um, flexible and independent work and the way in which that's been studied. I want to talk really quickly about the barriers to this type of work and the barriers towards trying to solve some of what we would typically call the social gap between, um, say, self-employment and independent work and the way in which we've traditionally thought about um, work with all the social protections that it typically carries. I want to talk very quickly about ways in which we can work on reform um, to improve the nature of self-employment um, so that it um, accords with the way in which we think about the social model and the social contract, um, actions that companies in particular can take, and then why all of this is important through access. So I'll just fly through these very quickly. At a macro level, we know that work has been fragmenting and that there's been fissured work. Um, Alan Kruger and Larry Katz have studied this in extensive detail on
on the rise of alternative work arrangements in the United States. We know that this has been the case in the UK as well, and we know that self-employment has been a factor um, in terms of the post-crisis, um, uh, in terms of the response post-crisis. We know that um, restricted access to work, um, restricted access to work has made it um, more challenging to get people that have been disconnected with the labour market back into the labour market, and that there are ways in which using um, using flexible models or using um, platform-based models to get, give, give people access to economic opportunity has, give, has given people an opportunity to re-engage with the labour market. Um, at a people level, we know that there's an income challenge and there's wage stagnation, and we know that a lot of the drivers, we know from our research that a lot of the drivers that engage in the platform engage for the purpose of gaining supplemental income um, in addition to um, other income sources, so that there is a role, um, uh, that effectively there is a challenge in terms of income growth and the way in which people have been able to gain extra income. And we know that there are obviously challenges to modern life that have meant that work, or at least the traditional structure of work, have meant um, has posed a challenge to the way in which people think about this. Now, when we talk about the challenges of modern life, what we mean here is we've got two retired generations. For the first time, we've got two retired generations alive at the same time. Most people have relationships where they have to care for their kids and care for their parents. And so the nature of work, the nature of traditional nine-to-five work and its limitations have played a, played a part in the way in which people make choices about how they might think about their work relationships. Um, and then, then there's the model itself, right? So we know that the independent contractor model is not new. Um, that, that has existed for a long time. And so the existence of um, collaborative economy companies exists within the context of that type of work. We also know that independent contracting in some instances has been problematic um, in the way in which it's been used in a downstream environment to outsource work, right? That's, um, and so it's important to sort of put that in some context. And then, then finally, we know that independent contracting, in particular in the transportation industry, has existed for a long, long time. Um, we, we, we often say that our work model, or at least Uber's work model, is the least innovative part about Uber. There's a lot of nice fandangle fun things that it does, but actually the model itself is not particularly new. But there's ways in which we can improve it. Now, individuals get work, don't get work in the same way. Now, the gig economy, collaborative economy platforms are different. They're labour platforms and they're capital platforms. Labour platforms is Uber, um, uh, uh, capital platforms is Airbnb. And the way in which people get income from that um, differs depending on the type of work that you do. So those are the, that's the most obvious difference. But there's also a difference in the way in which people get work. And so you can get work through, um, you can get work through scheduling software. And so if we look at, um, if we look at um, uh, this, this sort of form of scheduling software, um, it basically means that um, people like, like that, 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 is, that is the definition of one-way flexibility or one-way kind of choice where effectively the parameters that are determining when people get work are determined by an employer, uh, employer or a provider of work and not by the individuals. Um, this, uh, this sort of exists in the normal economy itself, but um, it also means that people can make particular choices. Um, the worst example of this is what they call in the United States the clopen shift, where people are allocated work to close a retail outlet usually and then reopen it a few hours later, where basically they're not paid for the gap in between where they closed it and where they opened it, but they have to stay up because the gap between closing and opening is so short. Right? Um, the, this sort of... Um, this sort of kind of work has effectively meant that managers are effectively free to cause distress and all sorts of um, things to their workers, but, no, but there's nothing in return that workers can choose to do. Um, it's also normal in the way in which you think about this in the gig economy, um, and there are other examples of companies that basically allocate shifts or allocate slots to the work that you do. So it's not an open platform in which people can operate. 
And it's a really important thing for us to think about the effect of non-exclusivity and the effect of an open platform. Um, if, you, um, if you are in the business of thinking about how people might have open access to work, it has to be that, that people are able to access that work at any given point when they need it and not be um, relegated to a particular class of worker just because of the time at which they arrived at the platform. Um, that then leads to the way in which we think about work um, on Uber. Right. And there's two parts of this that are really important. You can decide to go, the reason we show this picture so much is that you can actually go online and offline at the touch of a button. It's about as simple as that. They, um, uh, the way in which we think about the great strength of flexibility in our model or the great strength of flexibility that comes from the type of work that we do is that it's actually two-dimensional flexibility. And when we mean two-dimensional, we mean um, it, it operates at two levels where there's flexibility not just for um, not just for the platform in terms of when people come on, on come online and go offline, but also flexibility for the individual where they have control over when they come online and when they go offline. Um, but it's also that the flexibility operates at two levels. Right? Um, it operates at the ability to set your schedule so you can decide that you are going to work on Monday, on Wednesday and on Friday. But you can also decide on Wednesday morning as you are ready to drive that you can uh, that your child is sick and you'd li rather look after your child, or you might decide on Wednesday morning that you don't feel like it and you'd rather work on Thursday. And so it's not just the ability to set your schedule, it's the ability to vary it in real time that we think is the real strength. Um, there's increasing demand for this type of work. Um, we know this from studies that um, others have done, but in particular that McKinsey has done in terms of trying to size the market for people that are interested in these types of flexible options. Um, we know that one in six people, um, one in six people in traditional jobs have indicated an interest in becoming an independent worker, so it, being able to have the access to this flexibility. This flexibility has always, or this independent, um, self-employed kind of nature of work has always been available for people that are high-skilled and people that are, people that are high-skilled and highly paid. In fact, if you look, um, if you look at the 20 highest-paid professions in the United States, um, uh, a vast majority, over three-quarters of them, are generally fall into the category of self-employed or independent contractors. Um, generally speaking, this, thing, th this level of flexibility of being able to decide when you work um, and the ability to vary your work things has been available for a group of people, but it has not been available for the vast majority of people. And what, this, um, what the option of um, independent work on, say, a, uh, th through, enabled through an app or enabled through some sort of platform has, has allowed people to do is basically give that access to more and more people. Um, we know that this model is particularly popular. Um, it's, um, part of it is through, uh, we, we know this um, partly through our surveys, through, um, uh, through surveys in the United States, in um, Great Britain, France, but also here in Belgium. And we know that in most cases, it's, um, the, the, rate, the rates of responses to the ability to choose your own eyes and to be your own boss are very, very high. Um, we were, in fact, um, uh, we, know that we, we know this to be the case also because we have tried to measure this in a quantifiable sense of like how much people value this flexibility. And we've done work with Josh Angrist at MIT and we've done work with Judy Chevalier at Yale at trying to actually quantify this. And what we find is that the actual amount that people were willing to pay effectively for that flexibility is actually considerably high. Um, we also know this just simply because of the growth of our business, right? Uber turned seven three months ago and it now has well, well over two and a half million drivers globally. They are. There are barriers to the way in which they are barriers to getting this type of work, um, and 
So flex these flexible economic opportunities are great, but they aren't always available to everybody and they aren't always available very easily. The ease to which these, these options are available to people impacts on the way in which people behave when they actually get this work. So if it's harder to get the work, then you end up um, needing to make a commitment to staying on the platform for much longer, and it has perverse ways in which you think about it. If it's easier to get on the platform, then you basically come freely and you leave freely as well. So it's really important for us to think about how we might think about these economic opportunities and making the barriers to these economic opportunities as easy as possible. This is not a libertarian American, self, uh, American argument against regulation. This is an argument about making sure that the regulation is appropriate and works sensibly. We're trying to build an argument, we're trying to build a sustainable business for the long term. That means you've got to have public confidence so that regulation is important. But I think it's thinking about the nature of regulation, the way in which it operates. In many cases, there are waiting periods, long waiting periods to be able to get on the platform. So that actually, um, in a sense, dilutes the power of the economic opportunities that might arise. We can, we, we also know that we've got to solve for trying to make sure that this type of work, this type of flexible work, accords with the social model or the social contract that exists in many, many societies, right? And so being able to sort of accord with that basically works in two ways. One is to think about it in the context of is to think about in the context of ways in which we can work together on, um, on putting, to, putting in place the right public policy and policy architecture that works on a system-wide basis for most people. Um, another way to do that, and, the, and here are some examples of the way in which we might think about dealing with these. A lot of these things are effectively covered in the um, EU social pillar um, as one example. But then there's also actions that we can take as individual companies and as um, operators of these platforms to be able to address some of these concerns. So one of the key concerns that people have is around earnings and um, the way in which we can, uh, and one of the great benefits of um, Uber, for example, is the ability to get paid, very, paid instantly for the work that you do. So you can work in the morning, you can work in the morning, you can, you, you'll see in a transparent way what you've earned and then you can basically cash out your earnings instantaneously. Um, uh, for, for, um, and if you have certain financial products, you can do it for free, so some other ones you've got to pay a little bit. Um, like, I think it's like 50 cents or something. Um, but the point is, uh, you, you actually, like the ability to get paid instantly is really important. The clarity in what, in what you earn is also really important. Um, the reason why this is important is because earnings is, a chal is challenging um, where, the, where, where earnings is a function of the market um, that's set by the participants in that market. And so providing transparency and clarity and giving people like context for their earnings is not just a good public policy objective, it's also a very important product objective. Um, in terms of how we think about solving for the issues around benefits and protections and the social gap in a sense, we've, we, um, uh, we talked earlier about making sure that you've got the right policy architecture and making sure that you have the right systems, um, systems changes or advocate for the right systems changes. But there's also some things that can, you can do in the meantime um, on, individual, on, on individual issues. And so what we've done is we've worked with different partners in um, different partners all over the world in terms of thinking about how you think about accident medical insurance, how you think about um, uh, retirement um, products, how you think about um, uh, training products. And the reason why we do that is because um, there are ways in which, oh, there, there is an importance in trying to solve for these issues um, immediately as much as it is to advocate for long-term policy changes as well. This also applies to the way in which we think about um, giving our drivers or our partners voice and representation. And so we think about that um, through, um, we've instituted things like driver appeal panels, which allow drivers to basically have a say on how they, um, on decisions that are made um, that are contrary to their interest. Um, we also allow 
Um, we, we also work with partnerships with different groups. We have a, um, and, and we facilitate organisations, or at least we work with organisations that are representative organisations in the traditional way in which you might think of a union relative to the way in which people work. Um, the, why does all of this matter? Um, it all matters because um, it all matters because it's um, fundamentally about making sure that people have access to income when they need it. Um, the chart that you see there is actually something from the US Federal Reserve, but the same thing applies in terms of how you might think about people in financial distress. And being able to provide people with a flexible earning opportunity or flexible economic opportunity actually allows you to kind of mitigate, in a sense, the risk that people have for uncertain, um, uncertain bills that may arise. And this is the bit that I think is the most interesting bit, is you also give access to people that have been locked out of the labour market for um, a whole range of different reasons. We did a study on the outskirts of Paris. Um, the people that we're talking about are basically people, long-term unemployed, people that have a disability, um, older workers, and generally people that have caring responsibilities. We did a study in the, um, we did a study with um, uh, a bunch of professors in France at the Toulouse Business School and at Science Paul. And what we found was um, that effectively most of Uber drivers, um, most of the Uber drivers in Paris actually come from the suburbs of Paris that have the highest levels of unemployment. And what this did was it actually allowed the access, the flexible, the access, the, an open access to flexible learning opportunity actually created this opportunity. So in summary, um, uh, what, what we wanted to cover was that basically app-based work should be seen in a larger context. Um, the models are very different across the collaborative economy. Independent flexible work is in demand. There are barriers to being able to get that independent work through regulation, through, um, through um, occupational licensing, through the way in which you might, the time it might take you to get onto one of these platforms. Um, there's ways in which we can work, for, work together on systemic, systemic reform that is important for securing the social model consistent with this type of, in, this type of flexible work that works for people. There are actions that companies should take and can take now, and we are in the process of doing that. We are limited, in a sense, by the actions that you can take because of the nature of the legal systems that underpin that. Um, and in, a, in order to, um, uh, and all of this is important because what it does is it provides access to people to an earning opportunity in the, in the event of an unexpected bill, but also to people that have been disenfranchised or disconnected with the labour force. That's it. Thanks so much, Samit. Uh, I think uh, it was very interesting to see uh, the business model of Uber and how it fits uh, with uh, drivers and uh, the relationship with them, the impact. But um, also some of the points you mentioned could have also a more general um, uh, general implications for all crowd employment. Um, uh, one question from my side is um, I notice uh, that um, you put some effort uh, and you target to this social gap you mentioned and um, partnerships in order to uh, offer insurance and other um, such activities uh, go to this direction. Um, although uh, these efforts go beyond uh, the independent contractor status that people have. So do you see um, that there is a, a gray area on employment generated in crowd employment that um, should be somehow, um, uh, somehow um, extend and, uh, with uh, new uh, employment relationship? Do we need new employment relationship for these uh, models? I think the, the, the more interesting thing, I think, is rather than um, recreate a, 
rather than recreate a new employment relationship, the question might be whether we can think about more flexible forms of more flexible forms of being able to deliver on those on, on those benefits. So if we think about the reason why I think um, it's not necessarily um, as helpful to think about a new relationship is because actually the nature of the work is fundamentally different to the way in which we might think about the traditional employment um, relationship. So it's not as if um, there's traditional employment and then, then there's this type of work and then, then somewhere that somehow this thing fits in. Because in many cases, some people might take advantage of traditional employment and this type of work, right? So what might be an interesting thing to pursue, I think, and um, is uh, a series of different reform or a series of different ideas that, um, that make um, social benefit systems more flexible, that um, imp improve the level of integration in the tax system and the way in which we might think about how, how they're integrated in the tax system, ways in which we can improve the way in which we think about training and um, training and the way in which it integrates with traditional employment. So I think um, what's interesting is to deal with each of those individual sort of policy areas and each of those areas that we identify as kind of the gap in a sense and solve for that as distinct from having a new relationship per se. The Thank you. So, Cristiano, flexibility brings a lot of benefits and generates new opportunities. What are your views? Well, well, Let's uh, applaud also Cristiano's slide. You, okay. You don't mind if I stand? Sure. As you wish. Because I think uh, you hear me, right? I mean, for the live stream, you need to have a couple of microphones. Ah, so then I can. I think if you turn on this one, I want to stand near them and you will. So, please point there, right? Yes. Okay, so. Uh, done almost uh, all my work has been inspired by this constructing uh, rhetorical uh, loaded arguments and contrasting them with a few um, little empirical evidence that exists. So I will never use the word cloud employment, gig economy, etc., etc. I treat this market for what they are. They are digital labor market, two-sided market, and you read that is a marketplace for no standard and contingent form of work. For me, the, the fact that it's digital makes no difference from other non-standard form of work. The services are of different nature. Some are just bare labor, others use some assets. And um, it's exchange for money, so I don't consider this uh, competition winning prices. And the allocation of labor and money is determined by collection of buyer and sellers. Okay, this comes from the two-sided market uh, uh, literature and economics. For instance, and I take the occasion to raise a question for uh, me: in labor platform, in online platform, or in all platform, there is either multi-homing or single-homing, meaning that the people can use different platforms or there is a lock-in for the platform. Okay, now Amit told us now that it's very easy to switch offline and online, but there are some ethnographic work of people who have tried to work as Uber driver, etc., that, that claims that there is single homing, that there is a locking for the driver to go with Uber and not with Lyft. So this is just a question I raise for you. So um, I have a few main skip points, and then if I have more time, I'll just expand. So I want to. I have deconstructed rhetorical uh, discourses against empirical evidence, and uh, somehow there is this rhetoric of disruption. Are these platforms so innovative, or are they thriving on regulatory arbitrage and regulatory capture? If you know what I mean, uh, regulatory arbitrage is when there is a lack of legislation, and you can extract some profit from this lack of legislation. A regulatory capture is when only uh, the, you know, especially the commission or other uh, public institutions have a here only for some interest. 
you know, Uber, Airbnb can be considered as concentrated interest, interest group, using Olson distinction, but they've been very uh, gifted in framing, lobbying as framing, and enlisting diffuse interest, the consumers, to their, uh, as allies. When in Milan, the judge uh, forbid Uber, there was a lot of normal people writing in Facebook and Twitter in support of Uber. But the question is that, as far as a normal researcher is concerned, we have not enough empirical evidence. Because, and I want, don't want to be provocative, but there are some embedded researchers who have access to the data of Airbnb and Uber. They publish reports, but these reports are never published in a peer-reviewed journal. Because to be published in a peer-reviewed journal, you have to go under the scrutiny of peer review. So you have to put your data available to everyone. And I think that platform may benefit, because if we have the real data and we are able to, to demonstrate that the benefits of the platform are higher than the social cost, then we will all be sure. But let me be skeptical about the reports that, I, that uh, especially former Obama administration members who wrote for Uber or for Airbnb, because if I cannot, uh, uh, like San Tommaso, if I cannot check the data and the methodology by which this data have been produced, as a scholar, I will not trust the results. So there is a need uh, of having more access for every researcher to this data, and not only for some specific uh, consultant or academic who have used this data. But most of these reports have not been published in peer-reviewed journals, because in peer-reviewed journals you have to share your data. But if you don't share your data, you cannot go through the scrutiny. So in a way, uh, my critique to the commission and to other national organizations is that they are deciding on the basis of a lack of evidence. And I think that, to some extent, evidence-based policy is turning to policy-based evidence-making, so evidence that just supports the policy decision. Okay? So there are myths, in fact. The first myth is that uh, uh, in the 50s, when the first temporary agent emerged in the US, they were saying that this was just something for to do for bored housewife, that they just wanted to kill the time. These things reoccur now, saying that the, the digital labor market are for flexors, students, uh, staying at home parents, and uh, retirees. It's not true. There is evidence. There are some, for some people, this is a full-time job. And there is also evidence that there is not so much for some people, there are some surveys done in Europe that people do a portfolio of activities. They work in different platforms, working 10, 12 hours a day. So it's not conclusive evidence. It's, we don't know to what extent people just use some free time or just work full time, but it's not conclusive. But you cannot conclude that this is simply the natural way in which our flexible society organized work. Uh, we uh, will do a survey for DG employment now in 10 European <coughs> countries uh, on all non-standard form of work. We will find out what they do, what is their work history, and we will do a behavioral experiment to understand if these people want in the future protection, what is their willingness to pay to pay social protection, whether they do a hyperbolic discounting, so they have a present bias, they want all the money now and don't think about the future. And I hope that with this survey that should be finished by mid-November, we will have some more evidence on this issue. The other myth is that uh, this is an online flat meritocracy bringing a flat world. The few uh, experimental and quasi-experimental studies that have been done mostly with data from uh, 
Upwork and freelancer, etc., show that these markets are full of inefficiencies. Still, for instance, uh, there are some ethnic hiring within this labor market. So it's not true that digitalization uh, erases all this bias and heuristics. For instance, there is a study showing that Ceteris Paribus, so same level of education, an engineer woman is less likely to get that job than an engineer man, even in an online platform, because there is a tendency to give women stereotypically female work and to give men stereotypically female work. So, it means that, of course, they bring some efficiency to these markets, but they are still full of friction. And if any of you study labor economics, that was what the author had forecasted, that there are some high bandwidth information. When you see face-to-face -face a person, you choose that, that sorry, that uh, a platform cannot convey. So these are at least the three things that we can uh, debunk as myth. It's not true. There will be some students that do it for pin money, but a lot of people do it for their real income. These markets are not still so efficient. Third, uh, there is a little bit of autonomy and flexibility, but there are also people who work full-time on this platform. And of course, there is no, not social protection so far, but I was very nicely surprised by what I heard about uh, um, Uber, because I think these are new developments I didn't find in the literature. And, but I will leave this discussion, because Valerio, I think, will talk about more. Then, uh, how much I left? Uh, so, uh, five minutes. Okay. So there is also, economists tend to give us this idea that these changes are physiological, okay? So we have the, um, we have the skill bias technological change, so unemployment and inequality is just because technology requires different skills. And then you have the routine technical uh, bias change, saying that there are some tasks that can be uh, more easily routinized than others, okay? And so that uh, the computerization and robotization will uh, swipe away uh, jobs that are in the middle. So there will be left a lot of jobs, very high skilled, and a lot of jobs that are manual, that cannot be computerized, and there will be a hollow up in the middle, so losing. But is this true? I mean, if you look historically, technological change has been much more marked between 1950 and 1970, that has been so far. There is no correlation in the long term hmm, between technological change and unemployment inequality over the long term, meaning from 1950 until today. There is, however, a clear correlation in the fact that changes in unemployment, in employment patterns and inequality are clearly correlated with what? With the uh, uh, decline of uh, bargaining power of the unions and declining uh, uh, security in the labor contract. This is clearly correlated. So it is digitalization, but we should be uh, aware that it's not such a naturalistic and deterministic hypothesis as some uh, economists uh, uh, would claim, but there is also institutional change that make this happen. This is why I, th I, I agree with uh, one, of paper, one of the papers with Valerio that we should not treat this uh, digital labor market as something so peculiar and different from non-standard form of work in general, but we should see it as a part of a trend, trend of uh, flexibilization of work in the last uh, 20 years. So concluding, the policy question is what are the possible implications of this new digital labor market for employment and wage? Do they create new jobs or simply crowd out 
existing ones. Are they a source of in income integration for the underemployment or are they instead pushing wage down? Because if you can employ someone in, uh, in a, uh, from New York, you employ someone who works, uh, I don't know, in, uh, in, in, in Russia or Ukraine, of course the wages are different and what you pay there is very good, and, but this will bring down the wages of your independent contractor in the US. So this is the kind of implication. The second implication is, do they, just, they, do they justify regulatory intervention? If yes, in what areas? Taxation, liability, insurance, uh, social protection. And then, of course, what can be the cost of curbing innovation? Imagine that, we're, uh, that there is a regulation. The cost, uh, someone, I think, uh, Aguil calculated that if uh, all the independent contractors who make employee, cost for this platform would go up of 30%, and some of this platform may go out of the market. So, what are the costs of regulating if you curb innovation, but what are the social costs that you will pay in the long run from the public budget if all these people in 20, 30 years will have no social protection? And finally, for Europe, uh, what is the dangers of fragmentation to the digital single market because different member states are adopting different, uh, uh, different uh, solutions and you know, the collaborative economy uh, communication is just a broad uh, declaration by the European Union. Now, the question is that for answering all this, we still do not have enough empirical evidence. What we are in the condition that we epistemologically is called of uh, epistemic uncertainty, where your measurements are not good, your models are underspecified, and you have a lot of unobservable variables. So there is a lot of research yet to be done to conclude, and most of the debate is rhetorical uh, so far. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Cristiano. I'm sure Amit will want to comment, but I suggest to go uh, one round of all the panelists to hear the reviews, and then we'll go to the active discussion. Um, uh, one question for you, Cristiano. Uh, you talked also, um, as an, you posed as an open question uh, the cost um, of carbon innovation uh, through probably um, regulatory intervention. Um, but um, Amit also mentioned that um, in uh, some markets, um, like uh, the ride sharing, there are also barriers to entry. So probably we have extensive regulation in some parts of the market. Do you see this also as an element that we should look in order to uh, mod uh, incentivize more entry? More entry for individual or more entry for, for platform? For individuals, uh, and consequently that may have implications also for entry of platforms, right? Well, I believe that uh, uh, as far as we create a, a level playing field, hmm, both for platform and for individuals to really have uh, more choices, possibility of multi-homing with different platforms, so reduce lock-in, then this platform will never represent a threat to competition, no? for instance, like maybe Google and the others. So I think also in that respect, I didn't study that part. Huh? It was uh, something new today that I, will, that I heard from Amin about this uh, barrier to entry. Uh, but I did, I, the question is that for what regulating the labor part, may represent a very high cost for this platform and maybe the business model will not be viable. So the policymaker have to balance between the cost of regulating and the cost of not regulating because of um, 
in the future there will be many people that will have no social protection. So it's a, it's a matter of balancing uh, without any you know, bias in, on one side or the other. Thank you. I will turn to you, Irene, now. So we heard flexibility and the benefits can bring to the market. We heard about the lack uh, of evidence to answer some important questions. Uh, we heard uh, about um, uh, the, some open questions about the challenges and uh, potential uh, the inefficiencies, as Cristiano mentioned. Uh, what is uh, your view on the topic and uh, what uh, does your research so far show? Okay, thank you. Well, probably uncommon for a researcher, I won't uh, bring you now slides and research results and research findings. The, uh, my intention for, for now this introductory statement is more to give some um, pointers for thought and some impetus for, for the discussion later on. So um, the starting point for, for us as Eurofound to deal with this topic being an EU agency with the mandate to provide information and research for policymakers at both European level and at national level. We were following policy debate and we heard there is a lot going on, a lot of discussions about new forms of world, new world of work, new trends, the future of work and, and uh, similar topics. And our impression was different people talk about different things using the same connotations or the other way around. So what we wanted to do is a kind of a baseline mapping of what is really happening uh, at a kind of a higher level on uh, emerging employment trends. So what is either really popping up new on European labor markets or what has already been there, but of increasing importance. And in the framework of that, that's a study that we did about two and a half years ago, which we call the new forms of employment. And in there, we identified across Europe nine big trends one of them being crowd employment. And uh, we also use the terminology of crowd employment, uh, but actually we have a very similar understanding as Cristiano just mentioned. So what we understand by that is an online platform which matches supply and demand for paid labor. So there are these different elements in here. If you now compare the crowd employment to the other trends that we identify, um, it is somewhat unique, but then on the other hand, it shares certain elements with all, some of the other forms. So also here, some what uh, Cristiano already touched upon, these elements of flexibility, we see that popping up as an emerging trends with other types of uh, employment forms uh, realizing at European labor markets. Another element is uh, the, the relevance, the importance of modern technology facilitating this new employment form. A third element would be that uh, in contrast to traditional employment relationships where you have an employer and an employee, or you have a client and a self-employed or a freelancer, with this employment form you have a third party involved because you have the platform, you have the client, and you have the worker. But also that crowd employment is not the only of these new employment forms that we see this trend. And as a last element, what we see is uh, not only with crowd employment, but also with other types of new employment trends, um, that you can start questioning the concept of a job. So what is a job if you understand it as a bundle of tasks that have to be fulfilled by a certain person? So what we see is a kind of a fragmentation or casualization of a certain bundle of tasks into individual jobs or tasks, whatever you want to call it, which are then kind of split up between different workers. And there is somebody in the middle, the client, the employer, however you want to call it, which then kind of accumulates the different inputs into one. 
Um, I would also agree to the point we do not yet have enough evidence. Uh, notably, policymakers are always interested in, in data, in statistics, which uh, regarding crowd employment currently results in a situation that there are some surveys done. Uh, which are, again, somewhat fragmented, somewhat limited. So you see some service done on a specific platform or in a specific country with different methodologies. So at the end, at European level at least, not to talk about more globally, you cannot really say how big the phenomenon is. And if you compare these different researches that are available, they come to some quite differences in their findings. So there are some studies which tell us um, crowd employees are 0.4% of the whole populations. There are other surveys which tell us it's up to 20%. And this can well be related to differences across the countries, but more probably it's related to methodological approaches. Who is asked what is the terminology? Now we come back to that again. So at some stage it is important to give it a definition and also how it is asked for. Because notably with an employment form like crowd employment, it makes a big difference if you ask the respondent, have you ever done crowd employment or do you do it regularly or have you done it last week? So there, that's where we have the, the, the big differences here. Nevertheless, overall what we can say, um, if you compare crowd employment to the overall labor market, certainly at this moment, at least in Europe, it is a comparatively small phenomenon. We have a rather low share of people who are doing crowd employment and an even lower share who really do it as a main income source. But I wouldn't scale it down from just this data. This is available not only because of this data limitations that we have, but also what I think we need to take into account with an employment form like crowd employment is the growth that we can see in the last couple of years and the potentials that you can derive from them. So even if currently it might be still a small phenomenon, if you take then other surveys on, for example, crowd employment platforms, which are more established, which have a longer tradition, you can really see there uh, the bigger number of people involved and notably also here a huge number of workers or a big share of workers who really do that as their main income source. On top of that, what you can see or what we think you can see uh, on the market is an increasing heterogeneity of how crowd employment can be used. So when, when we started our crowd employment uh, research about four or five years ago, uh, it was mainly about micro tasks, the Amazon Mechanical Turk type of uh, things. So really click here, do this, take my photo type of work. Nowadays, what you see is um, not only in terms of the scale of the tasks, a big heterogeneity, but overall you can uh, classify these type of employment uh, by various factors. So that can relate to the skills that needs to be involved, who is the initiator, what is the matching project, is the work done locally or physically, or rather in individual sphere, price setting mechanism, uh, the organization, the ownership, the business model of the platforms. So it really becomes more and more heterogeneous. What we currently try to do is to come up with some kind of typology and classification. And for that, what we're doing is we collect elements of how you could differentiate crowd employment. And we are somewhere at around 15 different elements, which have then their sub-elements, their manifestations. And how you could understand that is for a specific type of crowd employment, you would pick from all of these 15 elements one manifestation, which means at least in theory, you have thousands of different types of crowd employment, which 
in practice are not yet there. You see some dominance of specific forms, which currently, again, is probably a rather limited number, but I think that clearly shows what the potential it could be used for uh, if the labor market, the society, the clients, the users, the workers become more accustomed to it and it becomes a more standard type of employment form. So why is it now important? Why should we bother about it? Um, we are a labor market research institute, so for us it's more about working conditions, employment conditions that are related to that, notably in comparison with what we call the traditional types of employment, the non-standard, the atypical types of employment, and now we have the new forms of employment like crowd employment. And because it is a new type of organizing work, at the end it has different implications on working and employment relations. There were some keywords already mentioned like flexibility, autonomy, uh, I guess the, the most important aspects also in terms of um, job stability, employment stability, income stability, social protection was mentioned earlier on. So those are all elements that we should take care of and it might be good to take care about them as long as the phenomenon still is in a scale that we can kind of understand and handle it rather than before it grows and it is kind of too late before really doing something. And also for that, I think it is important to bear in mind this at least perceived uh, heterogeneity of crowd employment. I think it's not fair enough anymore to say um, crowd employment offers flexibility and crowd employment is bad in terms of any other of the working conditions. I think we, we have to be more specific and talk about the individual types of crowd employment because if you are a Uber driver, you have completely different working conditions and employment conditions than if you are uh, a translator who does something in the online individual market. Um, and um, next to dealing mainly with employment-related issue, I think the, the employment form of crowd employment is, as to disregard, quite exciting or interesting because you very quickly should go or have to go beyond employment and labor regulation because it is so much related also to other aspects like for example competition law, intellectual property law, data protection and privacy regulation, business regulations, so it's, it's quite a broader aspect and I think it would fall short if you just think about in one policy area because at the end all these different things they are knit together, it builds one big package and if you want to on the one hand understand what the phenomenon is about but then also to make sure that it results in decent work and in decent competition it has to be considered in, in a bigger package. But I guess Valerio will talk more about the legal part, uh, pathway of that so I'll stop here for now. Thank you very much Irene and um, I think it's, uh, your talk was another uh, uh, Im important contribution to realize uh, the um, challenges in defining uh, crowd employment, the diversity of business model, and uh, to some extent uh, we need to make a choice given the great heterogeneity to focus on particular business models and study them in detail in order to understand them. Um, but it's a complicated topic, we all agree on that. Um, let's go to Valerio and then we start the discussion. So thank you very much. Uh, actually, talking uh, as the last speaker is good because you have more time to prepare, but also you run out of arguments because the other people more or less cover more or less what what you wanted to say. But um, I, I, I'd like to, to, to start saying that uh, there are three uh, basic assumptions that uh, we have already started to, um, if you want, unveil and deconstruct uh, 
in the previous talks when we talk about crowd employment. The first one is that this is work that is done to earn extra money, to earn pin money, and therefore uh, on a, an amateurish basis, and therefore there's no need to regulate it because there's no actually social, uh, social need of protection from, from the workers who are engaged in, uh, in this form of work. The second assumption uh, is that we are always and inevitably talking about uh, genuine self-employment, and we will uh, go back in a second about it. And the third assumption is that there is such a thing called crowd employment, the gig economy, uh, the platform economy, which is easily identifiable and uh, uh, corresponds to a single model, to a single business model, and to a single work organization model. Now, all these assumptions actually uh, can be called into questions. We have heard about uh, the issue of, uh, of the pin money. Actually, uh, many workers on the platforms work uh, to earn a substantial chunk of their income, or uh, the platforms um, offer them the main source of their income. So um, this is not about people that want to buy an extra coat. It's about people who make uh, their ends meet out of uh, crowd employment from the income. Uh, that derives from crowd employment. So uh, if there's need of social protection in general for workers who derive their income to their, from their employment as a primary source, there's also a need of social protection for these workers. Now, it doesn't mean that uh, we need to apply the very same regulations uh, all across uh, the, let's call it crowd employment or platform economy, but it means that we need to take uh, a very good uh, amount of attention to the issue of social protection. And um, the second thing about self-employment, again, I totally agree with all the uh, previous speakers. Uh, there is not a platform which is alike other platforms. We need to go on a case-by-case -case basis and analyze what the business model and the work organization model uh, are. There are platforms that genuinely work with self-employed people, and there's no uh, doubt about it. There are other platforms who um, exert some form of managerial prerogative, so uh, intervene in the provision of the service by, for instance, uh, setting out standards of quality, uh, asking people to wear certain uh, outfits, uh, by giving them strict timing to complete tasks. Uh, when you are uh, online, for instance, working online, we think of uh, people doing that completely uh, freely, but actually there are platforms that take screenshots of what you're doing at the very moment you're doing it, so to show to the client who pays by the hour or the minute that they, you are actually working on uh, at that amount of time. So imagine you are going on to, to, to check your, your Facebook because you want, I mean, everybody does it in regular employment as well. Uh, uh, and if you are in, caught in the wrong moment, you risk uh, of being pen penalized because um, somebody's taking screenshots without you knowing that. Um, all the, a, a very large amount of the platform put in place rating systems, review systems, that are also used to uh, discipline the workers. So if you fall beyond a certain, a certain average, uh, you might be excluded from the platforms, you might be um, prevented from joining the platform. And this is a way mm, some courts have found around Europe and US also of disciplining the workers in a way that is quite alike what traditional employers will do. Uh, 
I, I mean, I, I talked about the flexibility of getting on and off uh, on top, and this is true uh, for Uber, uh, but for other platforms, this is not true. In other cases, you need to give your availability in advance, and then you need to stick to the availability you got, otherwise you get penalized, you get um, outshifted, or you get not, uh, not called in the future. So, um, as I said, we need to look beyond the labels and to look at the very individual cases. And on a case-by-case -case basis, we need to analyze whether in uh, some forms of, of crowd employment, of platform work, whatever label we want to use, there's actually uh, a, a level of intervention in the provision of the service that amounts to the control that traditional employers exert. Because in that case, uh, the, the way of leveling the playing field is to apply employment protection to these people. There's no need and no um, actual uh, argument to say that they should be treated in a different way only because they work for a platform uh, and because the platform uses digital, digital devices. Because the, normally the, the technology that you use doesn't have an impact on the employment classification and your, uh, and your access or not to, to, to labor protection. And finally, but we already um, actually talked about it, um, uh, there is no homogeneity. Every platform is different from one another, but uh, also crowd employment platform uh, work is not a new phenomenon in itself and is not a detached phenomenon from the rest of the reality. Cristiano and Irene have made the points that we need to look at a broader phenomenon of the growth of non-standard forms of employment, of new forms of, of employment. Uh, in many cases, we have uh, instances of uh, um, casual work, which is quite similar to platform work. So um, Eurofound, under the, under the guidance of uh, Irene, uh, in 2015 published a seminal report on new forms of employment that also addressed the casual work, and I really encourage you to have a look at the report. The ILO has published a, a big report on the standard forms of employment that examines uh, also the gig economy in the framework of broader trends. Uh, it is true that the nine to five job for, a same, for the same employer um, directly hired by, by the very employer, it's, um, it, it, it's actually being um, flanked by, by other forms of employment. That doesn't mean that the standard employment relationship has not anything anymore to say, but we need to look at this phenomenon uh, from a broader perspective, analyzing what the trends are in the labor market in general. And in many cases, platform work amounts to a form of casual labor rather than a form of genuine self-employment. And finally, uh, if we um, want to talk about uh, regulation, uh, of course we can engage in a discussion on what form of regulation can be um, useful for these forms of work. And as Cristiano said, we need to know more because we need to know more about the needs of these people. We don't want also, we don't want over-regulation. But um, there's something that emerges from the practice and which I think is different from uh, the past way of um, doing work as a freelancer is that in many cases workers want to organize, want to exercise their voice collectively, want to gather, join unions, uh, form their own unions, uh, engage in collective bargaining or forms of collective negotiation, even if you 
can call it collective bargaining. And um, actually, freedom of association and collective bargaining are fundamental rights that should be open to anyone, irrespective of their employment status. So uh, we can talk about what protection should be afforded to employees, workers, self-employed people, but there's at least one thing that we shouldn't do, and it is preventing people that want to get collectively together to better their working condition from doing it for other regulatory uh, obstacles such as competition law and, uh, and things of the sort. Uh, thank you very much, Valerio. Um, so I think it's good to give you the opportunity to react to each other's comments. Um, I wanted just to uh, make two general questions for all of you. Uh, the first one is about uh, the lack of evidence that some of you pointed out. First of all, if this is a uni we all agree on that, all the panelists. And what could we do uh, about that? And what is the role of platforms uh, uh, in this um, uh, in uh, the future of providing more evidence. Would that be viable and open access to evidence uh, and data? Uh, the second is um, the classification of the relationships. Uh, I think uh, it was very interesting, Valerio's point about the degree of intervention uh, of the platform in the provision of service could be one an important um, dimension to distinguish whether we need to apply uh, traditional employment relationship or not. Do we all agree on that and um, uh, to what extent? But um, of course, feel free to comment uh, to each other um, uh, positions and remarks. Uh, who wants to start? Amit, you want to go first? Sure. Um, uh, I think I think on the question of on the question of um, are there ways in which we can um, are there ways in which there can be um, I don't, I, um, um, greater access or at least um, better access to data in terms of how people might think about research and work on research. I um, I don't want to. Uh, it's not for me to defend anyone's reputation um, in terms of work that they've done, but I think people have their own reputations in terms of academic work that they put their names to and how they are willing to, you know, I mean, uh, and the willingness for them to defend them as their own, uh, um, as their own. And um, in many cases, the academics that we work with, the only real property that, the, the only real um, thing that they get is da access to data. They don't, they, they aren't compensated um, in any way. They come with a research proposal and they have access to data. Um, could there be more access to data? Yes, the, um, like, like the, that's obviously um, something that we can look at. Um, I think the question about whether it's open is, um, is, 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 a much, is a deeper question and much more um, complex to think about. I think one thing that um, is, um, is interesting is the way in which, um, the way in which, so overlaying all of this, and you'd expect me to say this as the, um, as the tech company guy, um, but one of the things that we should think about, or we can think about in this context, is the way in which we may be able to use technology to improve some of the challenges that we've got. And what I think about in this case is that many of these platforms provide access to their um, API, which is basically a back-end thing that um, third parties can use for a whole range of different purposes. Typically, the third parties that use it, use it for the purpose of selling different products. You know? and so, for example, on Uber's API, you can connect up to the Sheraton Hotel, or the Sheraton Hotels uses Uber's API to basically connect up. So when you land at a, 
um, at an airport and you're going to a Sheraton, you can check in. I think it's Sheraton, maybe but Hilton. It's one of the hotel chains. You can basically check in. Um, there's a question about whether you can use that API for whether researchers can use that API to make assessments or judgments about the way in which our platform works. And that's something that um, is a live question at the moment and how, how we might think about that. Um, so, so that's something that I think people should think about. There's a question about whether that should be across the board, whether more platforms should be able to be willing and open to thinking about how you might use technology for that. Um, another aspect about how you might use technology for this, which I agree with in terms of um, everybody's um, contributions, is like the way in which um, it's, not, it's not correct to sort of think of the work that you might get um, through one of these app-enabled, um, this app-enabled sort of work. Um, it's, it's not correct to think of it as a separate or a different type of work. It's basically, it, form, it falls in that kind of new non-standard, well, non-standard forms of work. But the question is whether you can use, the fact that they're enabled by apps and by technology, whether you can use that technology to effectively provide or create opportunities for um, solving for some of these issues on social protection and whether you can um, use, the, use the ability for these things to aggregate um, risk pools and to think about ways in which you might think about questions around, like deeper questions around um, insurances, um, whether, whether that creates an opportunity or not. Um, the second question you had, um, Georges, was? about um, whether the degree of intervention of the platform in the provision of the service uh, should be a crucial determinant of uh, classifying, uh, uh, defining a, a regular employment relations. So I think um, Valeria will be more expert on the legal aspects, but I think it's just a fact, like it's a fact that that's what the courts look at, right? And so the degree of intervention is, is obviously a really important thing. For us from a, for, so putting my, um, Uber hat on. Um, the, uh, the the way in which we kind of think about it is that um, you want to have the, the you want to have like the platform should be underpinned by a few like very core principles, right? Some of which are that it's not exclusive, um, that there's no discrimination in terms of who's able to come uh, come onto the platform, um, and that um, and that there is th that there will be no preference in the way in which you are allocated work. That work is basically allocated to each, like allocated on a kind of impartial basis. Um, the interesting thing I think about about that question or about the degree of sort of intervention is um, there is there is a balance in the same way that regulators have to have a balance between how they um, provide opportunities for people to do this work and how you might um, regulate them. There is a balance in terms of being able to sort of facilitate these facilitate these connections between drivers and riders, right? So there's some certain things that you sort of have to accept as being part of wanting to use these platforms. You have to accept that you're going to use an app. To, to be able to make those connections. The degree of control should be a function of how easily you can leave, right? And now some of the, uh, how easily you can enter and how easy, easily you can leave. Part of that is something that the rules of the actual um, apps or the companies or the platforms or however, however you want to describe them, the things that are actually, um, the, 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 the thing that connects the people, like part of that is part of the rules that that, that might dictate. And we have taken steps in recent years and over time to, ensure that those rules are as minimal and as open as possible, right? So the ability to be able to do that thing on the, with the finger um, is like core to the way in which we operate and we try and make that as possible, like, like, as easy as possible. So there are some things that Valeria mentioned just in terms of the way in which you think about ratings, <clears throat> the way in which you might think about ratings and the level of influence that ratings has on these things. Um, uh, ratings is also an important um, feature for determining things like questions around service and other things, right? But 
um, you, you, like it, its its influence is 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 outsized. It, it is not as influential in in making those choices. But we've made decisions in recent years to make sure that um, it's not it doesn't take have an outsized um, outsized feature. So I, I, like I I, take, I I guess what I'm trying to say is I take the point that those things are, are have been have in the past in some in some platforms been used as a way in which to exert control, but they are not in they're not in any kind of meaningful way um, uh, in ours. But the, the, the but but the point around the point around you know, I mean should, should should you think about the level of control, the level of sort of influence as a way of determining that fact? I think that's a, that's obviously a very key point. I, I should also say that just on the question of. Um, whether people do it as like pin money or not. So I said that the, the platforms have a degree to which they can influence the on and off thing, and we have to minimise that as as much as we can, because minimising it is in our interest. But there's also governments and regulatory environments also have an influence on how much you do that on and off stuff, and that's because of how much core investment or time that you need to take to get on these platforms. Now, in many cases in a European context. Um, um, people don't do it as pin money, right? Like it is actually their kind of it is it is in many cases their full time work, right? But that's a function of re reducing the barriers to entry. Make actually makes it possible for people to be able to make that choice as well. Thank you. Any other reactions, comments that you want to make? Yeah, please. Well, maybe just to add to this question about how can we get evidence? So next to the point uh, that you made about the platforms could provide or could give access to their data. I think uh, there are, next to that, there are two big pathways of how you could create data. On the one hand, you do surveys, as it has already been done, has been attempted. We, we see quite clearly that there are limitations of getting good evidence or at least getting very comprehensive evidence, because at the end it requires a lot of resources. If you want to say something about crowd employment in Europe or even globally, if you want to base that on surveys, so that would require a lot of, of uh, resources available for that. The other alternative would be more like um, registered data or administrative data, but that would again require in the first step to clarify the, the role or the status or the position of a platform. So, uh, and I think Uber is there the best example. Are they classified as a technology uh, company? Are they classified as a transport company? That influences then where and how and whether or not they have to register somewhere. So I think it, it all gets back at the end in most of the cases to these uh, topics about what are the different players, the platform, the client, and the, the worker also in their relationship to each other. But I said also going beyond that in more like business standard types uh, of, of classifications. Regarding the, the aspect of the classification of the relationship, the, the intervention certainly is an important aspect. Here the question just arises, who is it that intervenes? We, we have evidence from some platforms where it is not the platform giving instructions and guidance, but then the individual cli clients who do not give the workers the full autonomy and the flexibility, but it is the clients who tell them what and when and how to do the things. So then again, the, the point comes up, if it has been decided that the worker is an employee, the employee of whom? Is it the employee of the platform? Is it the employee of the client? And what has been done at European level is um, going a bit beyond. So there, there is a set of criteria 
which defines what an employee is. And I think in three or four, you probably know better, uh, criteria one of them is this level of instruction and guidance. But there are also other elements there, like who provides the assets with which the work has been done. And I think, again, it's, it's about the package to be considered, not just about instructions or intervention, as you mentioned here. And I have a, one interesting point that I found on, on one slide of, of Christiana is the, the question, does crowd employment um, replace other jobs? And I think that, again, from the research perspective, is a, a very tricky one. It sounds so easy, but I think it's very difficult to answer because it brings us back to the topic of definition. Uh, what is a job? Because as I said, notably with those platforms that provide only these micro-tasks and fragmented things, is that a job? And does this replace something else? Or does it replace parts of something else, which is a proper job? And the, aspect, uh, the, the other aspect in this question, what means crowding out? Because in, in the strictest sense, you could always consider crowd employment as a form of outsourcing. That would somewhat imply that the job previously was done by in-house staff of a company, proper employees, which is now replaced by that. But that not necessarily needs to be the case. It can al always have been contracted out, and you can't replace a normal self-employed with a crowd employment uh, task. So I think it's also there we have a, an inherent challenge of, of the definitions before you can start answering and, and gathering data on that. Thank you, Irene. Cristiano, please. <clears throat> I think that there is a, a possibility to see if these platforms are uh, further uh, contributing to the retraction of the firm and to give in a source. I think there is, was a survey done by Elano Desk uh, with the employer and at least 20% of them say that, that, that if there was not a platform, they would have hired a full time. So this is a substitution of a regular job. <clears throat> with if you find platforms that are able to, that are willing to collaborate, we could try to apply a counterfactual impact evaluation. So we would analyze a sample of a treated firms and employer working for the platform, match them with a comparable control group and see if there is substitution crowding out. Obviously, in order to do this, you have to find a platform willing to, to contribute. I think there, is, there are plenty of methods. The survey are based on self-report, uh, whereas some, at least Upwork has been very nice with researchers, and researchers have, have done experiments in Upwork, showing, for instance, the inefficiency, the discrimination. So I think the access to, but obviously understand that these data are confidential commercial data, et cetera, et cetera. So in a way, platform have the rights not to give access unless the commissioner for competition ask, and then they have to give everything to, to her. But uh, I mean, so it would be better to give it to researchers or researchers show that things are not so bad. And <laughs> let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, um, on the difference of business model, I am tend to agree and disagree with Rene and Valerio in the sense of obviously from a regulatory and uh, legal perspective, you have to look at the details. But as an economist, for me, a typology has to be two by two. And I 
and I want to understand whether these trends goes in the direction of uh, routinization, computerization. So for me, it's just manual and analytical and high skill and low skill. These are the four types I see. Then there may be nuances in there, but from a temp, temp from an economist, economist perspective, and the trends that you want to see, I think these are the four types. And going into much nuances would would um, prevent theorize and getting conclusion. The last things I want to say, because I'm not a lawyer, about the status of employment and self-employment. I see a trend that occurs also in other fields. Politician and policymaker have abdicated their role to the judge. It's the judge who, who are deciding this issue everywhere. Uh, and about control, uh, there is someone who claims that from market to hi hierarchy, now we're going to algocracy. So the, ru the rule and power of the algorithm. As Valerio said, there are some platforms where they, if, they are, if you are paid by the hour, uh, you have to enter a system that uh, control how many strict strokes and minutes you do. This, for me, is the highest form of uh, not even Frederick Taylor and Taylorism have thought about this sorts of control. So it's, a, it's like a, the famous movie by Charlie Chaplin, you know? So I think this is real control. Larry, please. Uh, Very quickly, I want to uh, add on the, on, on the openness of the uh, data to, be, to research, but I would like to make a um, form of provocation uh, about data anyway. Uh, ratings and reviews are uh, very important to workers as well. Um, workers in, in, in some platforms um, use these ratings to get more clients. So if you are, uh, you, if you have very good ratings, you have, uh, you have more uh, opportunities in, uh, in the platforms. And one of the problems uh, is also with the captures. Uh, from platforms of those ratings, because normally platforms consider those ratings are proprietary. And uh, if you move from one platform, from platform A to platform B, you can't bring your data with yourself. So there are locking effects that I think should be taken care. At the very least, if we want to consider these people as self-employed, if these people are self-employed, the rating is their main form of capital, much more important than uh, the tools they use to fix uh, whatever, they do, whatever they do. So um, this is also another thing that we should um, also think about when we talk about openness and data. And uh, the other thing, uh, very quickly, uh, direction and control is the main criteria of determining uh, who is an employee and who is not in all jurisdictions in the world. Then you have some corollary criteria. Irene mentioned the ownership of the, of the capitals, the tool, et cetera. But the main criteria is normally direction and control. Then, the, for instance, in the European Court of Justice jurisprudence, they also consider, of course, remuneration. If you're not remunerated, you cannot be an employee. And non-marginality of your work. But direction is normally a very core element of determining who is an employee and then have access to employment protection and was not, and therefore is left outside those protections. Uh, thank you, Valerio. And with this, I would like to open the floor for questions to the panelists. Uh, we have some minutes for that. Uh, so uh, please identify firstly yourself, and then we uh, collect the question. Uh, the gentleman there first. We will collect three, four questions, and we will answer collectively, OK? Uh, 
Please. Thank you. I'm Nico Keppens from the European Commission, uh, DEFCO, so the Development Corporation. So my question is a little bit linked to this. Um, the European Commission has started the External Investment Fund uh, program in order to, to invest in, in third countries, in Africa in particular, to have more jobs there. Uh, your opinion about would it be a good thing to start crowd employment or to promote crowd employment in those economies? Um, it would help, perhaps, there is this digitalization uh, um, efforts also in those countries, and it would perhaps also fill the gap, as you mentioned, uh, Mr. Codagnone, between the high-skilled and the, the manual work. Then linked to this, um, what is the link between crowd so, uh, employment and the and, uh, how is it called? unconditional basic income? Uh, would those two be working together in order to get crowd employment to give it more success? Thank you. Thank you very much. There was a question there, please, and then I'll go there. Yes, my name is Wolfgang Kowalski from the ETUC. I have a question to Cristiano first. I was quite astonished that you say there is no evidence, but you are doing research for DG Ample. On, on what is this research based? And the second question to Amit. Um, you know there is a lot of discussions about the access to data, sharing knowledge, etc. I don't quite understand. You want to be transparent and cooperative and everything, but you don't give any access to data to the scientific community, which is not a, a business competitor. Uh, I understand that you don't want to give access to other platforms, but uh, I think in the long run you have to give access. So why not doing the first step yourself before you are being forced? And we as trade unions, we are actually running a research among crowd workers, which is extremely difficult. But inside normal companies, it would be quite easy. We can, we can do research in any company where we are present. It's not possible with Uber and other companies. Do you think this is uh, justified? Thank you. And, uh, let's go there for... Uh, Bernadette Segol, I'm a European trade union expert. Um, first, a comment. Um, I don't think anybody in this room or amongst my friends or relatives would encourage their kid to uh, say that their future is in crowd employment. We have to be realistic about that. That we, uh, the society wants uh, high-skilled people. We encourage our children to... Uh, develop their skills, but we don't tell them, look, the future is crowd uh, employment. We would tell them, you have to do something if you haven't done uh, anything good. But it's not the way, the positive way, we look at the future for our children. My question is, is this going to reduce inequalities? And I think it is a central question because I think disruption, social disruption that we uh, witness uh, in Europe, but also in America, so far as I know, um, is very dangerous. Inequalities have uh, gone up. And uh, I can't see that inequalities would be reduced unless you have proper social protection, which 
unlike in the US, is given by solidarity, social solidarity in Europe. So how can you, uh, if you agree, if we agree that inequalities have to be reduced, how can we, could we use crowd employment to do that? And what would crowd employment have to change to uh, achieve that? Thank you. Uh, yeah, Cristiano, um, let me let me. I have a quick question about uh, the DJ problems. Yeah. Well, first, maybe uh, my statement should be qualified. It's not that there is no evidence; is the evidence is scant and inconclusive. Mm -hmm. The things we are doing for employment is we are gathering new evidence. So we just launched, and we will design a survey about this form of work and we will do primary work on the field and maybe there's some new evidence. Uh, so we, we will construct this new evidence. So this is, a, if, you, if it answer your question. Because you say on what is based, it's based yeah. on the fact that we are trying to find new uh, evidence, making a survey among uh, uh, non-standard workers in 10 European countries. Do, do you get access to platform? No, data? no, no, no. Okay. We, we don't get access to platform. We will uh, do a, a representative sample from the population. So, and obviously, we have the problem that the prevalence of these people is small, and so we will have a smaller number. Consistent. Consist uh, the question about development countries. Again, here we. I don't know if this crowd employment can help bridge the gap between. Um, between low skill and high skill, and also the question of um, there about our kids. We must be careful because we still don't know. But the, if you are a top level engineer or software engineer or architect, uh, you are very highly qualified. And if you use Upwork, you can work from Milano uh, and work for someone in New York. So in that case, you know, it's not something that I would not wish for my kids in the sense that this is a I qualify a job. The matter is how much of these true freelance are there or how much, we don't, you know, I would not be able to answer whether this phenomenon help creative individual to be their own entrepreneurs and they like to do it, or to what extent these are people that have uh, not found a better job and they have to do this. I mean, honestly, I, I, I wouldn't have the data to conclude. Obviously about inequality, the only things that is pretty uh, statistically proven is that in most of this labor platform, instead of having a long tail, you have a star effect. 20% of the contractors get 80% of the job. So by itself, this creates more inequality because the job are not, a, 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 they have not a long tail, but they are very concentrated. So uh, this is just a, a small answer. I mean, there was uh, a yeah. direct question, and then you can comment on the others. So I don't, I, I don't think it's right to say that we don't give access to data, right? Um, and we don't give access to data to the scientific community. Um, the question is, the question is how, how is that sort of access to data facilitated? Like um, two months ago, a bunch of colleagues, um, uh, a bunch of colleagues from my team uh, attended the National Bureau of Economic Research's summer. Um, summer sessions in Boston, right? Um, in that summer session, um, there were five academic papers written by academics from, the new, from NYU, UCLA, um, Yale, um, 
Princeton, other universities. Um, there were five academic papers that were, um, uh, or five, five discussions based on um, draft academic papers that were basically facilitated on the back of data that was shared, like on the back of Uber data, right? So I don't think it's correct to say that we don't share data. The other thing that we also do, which is unique amongst most tech companies, is we also have a platform called Movement. Um, uh, what it is is basically it's a it's not on it's not on work related data, but it is on transportation data, right? And so what Movement is is it's basically a platform that um, releases open data um, on all the cities in which well on most of the cities it does it's not live in every city because there just isn't enough data in some of these cities. But it's it, but it's um, it basically is an open platform for policymakers and for public policy professionals, city planners, people that are interested in the way in which cities function, um, that they can basically use this platform to get data about how those cities um, perform. So I don't think it's the, uh, like, I, I challenge the characterization that we don't, share, we don't share any data. Could we do that in a better way? I'm open to, like, like uh, as always, like we're open to thinking about how we might do that. Could we use different methods in which we share that data? Um, because at the moment, it's basically very traditional. We have a, you know, a researcher is interested in a particular topic, uh, interested in a particular, um, has a particular proposal. They come to us. We think, you know, I mean, we evaluate whether this has, whether we have the data to be able to do it, whether it would be an interesting topic, and then it goes from there. Could this be done in a different way? Yeah, perhaps. But I think the idea that we don't share data or don't use it to do different studies is, I think. Um, uh, I, I don't think I don't think that's right. Um, on the um, on the um, question around developing countries, I think the um, I think uh, the one thing I'd say on the developing countries question that 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 I find interesting is how you might be able to scale social protection into um, social protection or ways in which you might solve for social protection into environments that aren't that aren't um, like going to countries that don't have that level of social protection, right? And so the example I think of here is Uber operates in Nigeria, right? Um, the way in which we think about um, the way in which you think about accident accident medical insurance or insurances for workers when they are at work, um, the way in which it applies in some so, you know, I mean in some places it, it doesn't apply universally to the way in which you think about it for independent contractors, but we've developed a product that basically applies in over 34 states in the United States. It applies in France, um, uh, Australia, um, but also in Nigeria, right? And what the product does, is it actually tries to extend a social protection that previously didn't exist. And so can you use, like, can you use these global scalable platforms to be able to actually do, like, in a sense, try and pursue social reform? And that's a kind of interesting sort of topic or interesting kind of area. Um, uh, as to the question around, um, would we encourage um, would we encourage um, people on uh, would we encourage people to take on um, whatever whatever phrase you want to do this type of this new type of work? We should just all the, I think all of us should just agree to call it like I don't know ex employment or some some other kind of new phrase. You know, I mean, um, they, God knows they invented every six months a new phrase. But would we encourage people to do this? I think I'd tot like, I just want to sort of um, put a plus one on Christiana's comment about um, they are the different types of platforms have different levels of work, and the way in which you might engage with those platforms um, is very different. There is a, um, uh, there is, um, uh, there are a whole range of different um, uh, platforms that provide work that, that are very highly skilled, and what they do is 
provide a level of aggregation that didn't, didn't previously exist. The other things that they do is platforms also are all these types of like app enable kind of work. They also can create a market where one didn't, didn't previously exist, right? And so what we have is we've seen instances on um, platforms such as Uber Eats where restaurants have been able to get new orders that they previously weren't able to get access to because the market created that. So I think the idea that these things shouldn't be used or, 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 or that we'd never encourage people to be used shouldn't be seen in a binary sense like they are like it's differentiated depending on the type of work that you do and the type of platform that you might use to do it. Um, Upwork is a good example. There's also people like Thumbtack, you know, I mean, which is actually literally a platform that connects um, highly skilled people with other people, right? Um, Freelance is another example. There's like a cavalcade of these sort of examples that do it at different levels. So I think it depends on the industry and the nature of the work that you're thinking about. Um, and the reason why I think we'll think about it is because um, the way in which the traditional labour market has worked has meant that there's an inefficiency in the traditional labour market in able, being able to connect people to work, particularly being able to connect um, people that are the long-term unemployed back into the labour force, right? There are 20 million people in the United States that say that they uh, would like to work more hours or would like work, right? There are 84 million people, um, like, again, this is like one person's fact is another person's opinion, but, you know, like, there are different studies that say there are over 80 million people in the EU, 15 plus, that would like more hours or would like more work, right? Like, they are, um, you know, there are millions of people in Brazil that would like the, the, the same sort of thing. The idea that um, you have an, a flexible economic opportunity for people to be able to sort of get access to that work shouldn't be compared to like a traditional job, but it should be there if people need it, right? So people might use it at a certain point, they might decide not to use it. Now obviously the dynamics of how that works is very different. I didn't address the point about multi-apping that Christiana said a while back. I think that we would encourage people to do multi-apping, but in some cases multi-apping is just not possible. Um, it's not possible because there aren't other, other features, but I think being able to do different types of work is definitely like something that we really encourage. It also is a really important part in terms of maintaining the model. Uh, thank you. Some last comments before we close. Irena, you want oh, to say? Yeah, maybe one, one, one sentence or two sentences regarding the topic of inequalities. So, as I said, without having strong evidence, but we have some anecdotal evidence that crowd employment at least has the potential to be a good tool for labor market access, notably for vulnerable groups who want or who need more flexible employment, um, either because of their personal situation, because of location or whatever. What we do not really know is what happens afterwards. So are they kind of stuck in this type of employment or is it a stepping stone to the traditional type of employment if that is the goal, the aim to get into more traditional employment. So also this is certainly something where I would assume we need more research, we need more evidence on that. Um, that said, um, not all crowd employment is bad. So as I said, again, there, there comes up the point of this heterogeneity in crowd employment. Some, some forms, they are kind of causing precariousness and the, these differences between standard employment and, and crowd employment, while notably the, the aspects like you mentioned, the, the higher skilled one, design platforms, there are platforms now talk, popping up for, for doctors, for nurses. Um, there, you, you might not necessarily see a difference between standard employment and crowd employment. I think what needs to be ensured in order to avoid inequalities between a person employed through crowd employment and a person employed through uh, standard employment is that you make sure that 
if they're doing the same job, they have the same uh, conditions for employment, for working conditions, social protection, everything that is related to that. So I think it's, it's not so much inherent in the concept of crowd employment, it's more than about the operational implementation, how it is done, and what we see there um, are developments going in this direction by platforms um, themselves coming up with code of contact, co contact to, to treat people well, to, to make sure that they have good conditions, and on the other hand also kind of representative bodies are coming up to trying to uh, be a collective voice for them so that, that there is some kind of, of leveling out of, of these aspects. Thank you. Valerio, the last uh, comments of the session. Be very quickly on, uh, on developing countries. Um, well, I, uh, I think, yes, it, it could be an option to, 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 uh, to examine. Uh, but not if it, if that means that we go there and and do crowd employment because we can pay them less than one cent per hour because yep. that's what normally happens when we uh, crowdsource uh, work to uh, the south of the world and uh, in terms of developing uh, the economies, um, my I local leagues uh, Umarani and Janimberg have done studies on who on the demographics of the people that crowd work from India on the Amazon mechanical Turk. Ninety percent of them are college-educated or more. And I don't know if in terms of development economics, it's a good thing that uh, all these uh, well-educated people spend their time in a, a career that actually doesn't have uh, much of, uh, gives much opportunity of career growth. Of course, as Cristiano says, uh, we need to distinguish between different forms of crowd employment in some cases that could be a great opportunity, but it depends on what kind of crowd employment we want to export there. Just one final statement. Anyway, the question I always ask myself is, are the younger people less interested in permanent jobs? And maybe we are thinking <clears throat> old-fashioned. But then I thought, every year, hundreds of thousands of uh, European young people apply to EPSO competition to get a full-time and lifetime job in the commission despite Brussels weather. So it means that they like <laughs> a full-time job. Thank you very much. Uh, so uh, I think it's time to enjoy this weather that Cristiano mentioned. Uh, let's thank, uh, the, honestly, the panelists for being here and sharing their views with us. Thank you so much for being here. And I wish you, to all of you, 